you ready to join us for the time of your life? Seniors Association Kingston Region presents a radio show and podcast developed and presented by our members. I'm Don Amos, Executive Director for the Association. Time of Your Life explores how to live with purpose, providing a wealth of knowledge for our listeners on a variety of topics, from health to finance and everything in between. And of course, finding out about the latest leisure and recreation activities happening at the Seniors Association. Here is this week's edition of Time of Your Life. Every November, we pin on our poppies to mark the end of the First World War. Total number of military and civilian casualties were about 40 million. Estimates range from 15 to 19 million deaths and about 23 million wounded military personnel. Canada joined the fight against Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1914. When it was over, 67,000 Canadians were dead, with another 173,000 wounded, out of an expeditionary force of 620,000. But November of 1918 didn't mark the end of the conflict for this country. Some 4,000 Canadians were sent to Russia as part of a much larger Allied force when revolution took the Tsarist regime out of the Great War. They were there until mid-1919. The objective was to back a Russian government that would continue the fight because if there was anything the great powers feared more than the war, it was revolution and the threat it would spread to other countries. A British documentary explains how, by 1917, the revolution was inevitable. Russia in 1917 was war-weary. Huge losses, poor leadership and corruption, plus the nightmare logistics of a 900-mile front left our army running on empty. I don't know whether Russia's dream of destroying Germany will ever come true. Probably not. We have nothing to fight with. No rifles, no mortars, no explosives, no boots, no overcoats. Nothing. But incredibly, Russia's army held the line. It was the home front that cracked first. Petrograd, now St. Petersburg, Russia's capital and industrial powerhouse, seethed with discontent. Its factories were swollen with workers, with little to eat and cramped housing. A demonstration on the 8th of March, 1917, began peacefully. It was a glorious, sunny, frosty day, and all the people were in an excellent mood. They were singing the Marseillaise and asking for bread. But the Tsar ordered the protests crushed. On Znamenskaya Square, in the heart of Petrograd, the killing began. Sergeant Sergei Kapichnikov was there. The ensign ordered the bugler to play three signals. Then he commanded, rifles, ready, aim, fire. Everybody scattered. One man was down. A woman fell. Over 50 civilians were shot dead. The massacre forced Petrograd soldiers to choose whom to defend, 
The people or the Tsar? Back in barracks, Sergei Kapichnikov spoke to his comrades. It would be better to die with honour than obey any further orders to shoot into the crowds. Our fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers and brides are begging for bread. Are we going to kill them? They shot their duty officer dead and poured onto the streets, joining other mutineers and workers. British journalist Arthur Ransom cabled his office in London. About 200 persons killed, stop. Local police chief lying dead, stop. Revolution definitely begun. Fourteen members of the Canadian Siberian Expeditionary Force are buried at Cherkin Russian Naval Cemetery on the outskirts of Vladivostok. The Time of Your Life is available as a podcast, so never miss a show. You can access our podcast network by logging onto our webpage and following the links. Check out seniorskingston.ca The immediate post-war period in 1919 was one of disruption with the demise of Romanov Russia into the birth of the monolithic communist state, the effects of the collapse of the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian empires, and the reparations demanded on Germany. The peace movement grew in response to the mass slaughter of the Great War. Disarmament took a few faltering steps forward. The League of Nations represented a global desire to solve international issues peacefully, but it failed. None of these moves could stop or impede the rise of Hitler and the Second World War in 1939. Peace remains just as elusive today as it was in 1918. I'm Elizabeth MacDonald for Time of Your Life, and I'm here today with Sister Pauline Lally, active in the Sisters of Providence, a leader of your faith community and activist, and one of the co-founders of PeaceQuest. Now, PeaceQuest emerged as Canadians were marking the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812 and emerged as we were beginning to anticipate the 100th anniversary of the First World War. Can you take us back to the very beginning and share with us what was... What was some of the vision uh, as as you and others created PeaceQuest? What were you hoping was going to happen? Well, maybe I'll start with um, when I first went into our Justice and Peace office uh, back in the mid-90s, I had been asked to speak to city council to a resolution that a couple of uh, councillors put forth. The Royal Canadian Horse Artillery was going to celebrate a significant anniversary, and they were putting going to do some things that we felt were like war games almost in the park. And um, so they, uh, Dr. Alex Bryan of the uh, Physician of Social Responsibility, Lucy Myers, and myself spoke to city council. And um, we wanted to honor the veterans, absolutely, but we did not want to have the glorification of war with tanks and games and things like this for kids to do in the park. Uh, 
it passed by a majority of one, and then you might say all hell broke loose. The um, the mayor held a, a meeting the following day, and uh, the vote was taken again, and it was rescinded. And for several weeks, all kinds of letters went to the uh, Whig Standard, and we got phone calls here. The, the The message was clouded. We were not against the honoring of the veterans. And so um, uh, I thought, you know, what can we do in this military town of ours? And I often thought, like, we worked hard on justice issues, especially in the area of poverty, and maybe what could we do on peace? And then I got elected to leadership, and I went away for a sabbatical when that was through. And when I came back, Jamie Swift, had just, who took my place as director of Justice and Peace Office for us, uh, had just written a book. And he was all excited about it. And he said uh, he was going to do a book launch. And he said, you know, now's the time, I think, for us to take a look at your dream about having a peace conference or something around peace here in Kingston. And so um, uh, we had a, a potluck supper and lots of conversation. He's got wonderful connections in, in town and uh, from educational, cultural streams, political streams. And out of that developed PeaceQuest. Because what had just happened with the war of eight, with the remembrance of the war of 1812, we celebrated, if you'll recall, with a battle in our harbor. And I, I was just horrified because people were screaming and cheering. And I just thought, oh, it, it upset me a great deal and I th and the government had uh, paid uh, excuse me um, had spent about over 40 million dollars on remembering that war that was kind of we weren't even a country then and we thought can we anticipate what the country might be doing how they're going to celebrate the four years of uh, the celebration and remembrance of World War One, So we kind of wanted to get ahead of them. And so we worked, uh, well, actually for five years. And uh, one of the things we tried, we've got wonderful people that became part of our uh, group. And one of the things we wanted to do is, like, what is peace? And so, what, so what is peace? Well, we decided not to define it to box it in, but to describe it. And we describe peace as an active way of living, resolving conflicts cooperatively, nonviolently, and respecting the well-being of the earth and all its people. So much more than simply the end of armed conflict. Or the absence of war. Yes, mm -hmm. peace is much more than that. Well, you've been on this five-year journey challenging all of us to rethink how we remember war, how we talk about war, and to embrace a far broader understanding of the possibilities for peace. It's five years later. What are you noticing about our community? Are you seeing some shifts or changes in how we remember war, how we talk about peace? Uh, 
I, I, I don't know how to answer that for sure. Um, I would hope so. We've certainly had lots of events during these four years where the conversations of war and peace have come up. And uh, we've presented, uh, well, other people will tell you, you know, of plays and uh, other things. And there's been a good turnout at them. And I've often thought it's a kind of a dream of mine in this military town. I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if RMC could one day be called RPC? RPC. Now, what might that stand for? Royal Peace College, where cadets could learn the skills of conflict resolution, negotiation, and the power of nonviolence. Sister Pauline Lally, thank you so very much. What do you know about the Seniors Association Kingston? We are a nonprofit, charitable organization specializing in recreation and leisure activities for today's active, older adults. The association offers 250 programs designed for those 50 plus at four locations across Kingston. Check out our latest program guide and registration information at seniorskingston.ca. Overlapping the First World War, but with its roots in the conflict, was an event that claimed even more lives around the world. The Spanish flu resulted in somewhere between 50 million and 100 million deaths around the globe before it disappeared in 1920. Retired history professor John Fielding wrote about that outbreak last year in an issue of the Seniors Association magazine, Vista. Where did your interest in the Spanish flu come from? I think primarily because I was looking at a picture of uh, my grandmother and grandfather that was taken at towards, I think, 1917. And in it was a picture of a young girl, probably two or three years of age, Winifred, who would be my aunt on my mother's side. And she passed away in 1919. So I started investigating that. And um, in then it came down, she had a form of pneumonia, and most people who died of the Spanish influenza, it was really from a form of pneumonia, though it was the H1N1 uh, influenza, a variation of the H1N1. Which nowadays we would call the common, a common form of the flu. Yes, and of course most people get vaccinated or should get vaccinated and therefore we don't have a, a pandemic the way that it happened back in 1917 when of course there wasn't a vaccination and um, and the conditions were such it was um, many of the homes of the poor and in the crowded condition of the military and army camps, it was a breeding ground for the spread of the, uh, of the virus. Now we come to the sort of cause and effect part of this equation. What's the relationship between the First World War and the pandemic? Where did the pandemic come from in that context? Yes, uh, what has been discovered 
is, uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly when it was discovered, but fairly recently, that it started in Kansas. Medical historians have traced it back to Kansas in an army camp there. And as the American, uh, the troops from that Kansas army site moved across the country, well, they spread it. And as a result, over 600,000 Americans eventually died of what was called the Spanish influenza. Then, of course, the troops and the conditions being shipped to the front in crowded condition um, on the ships would spread it. And then once they reached the trenches, it spread among the other troops. And then returning troops, of course, would carry it back to other countries. But it's really quite a mystery how it ended up in even Antarctica among Inuit people. And um, and the Samoans, for example, an isolated area now, who took it to Samoa? And 90% of Samoans eventually got the Spanish influenza and 20% of their population died. So it was a world pandemic like had never been seen before. It was unique in history. What was the Canadian toll? The Canadian toll, they estimate at 50,000. Now, a lot of these are estimates because people died of pneumonia, and sometimes it wasn't... um, recorded as the Spanish influenza or the H1N1 influenza of the time. Um, And there were many unrecorded cases. The figures are just wild about how many died internationally. I have uh, heard just the other night at a presentation at Queen's University by medical historian the figure of 20 million. I've also read up to 100 million. And part of the reason for this wide gap between 20 and 100 million deaths is because there was such poor record keeping. In many countries, records were simply not kept, and therefore estimates were made based on the number of deaths in a certain period of time and and connections made maybe with pneumonia and other things like that. But the figures vary widely. But it's pretty solid, the Canadian figure, about 50,000. Was it a, a fast-spreading disease? It must have been because it only lasted for a couple of years. Yes, it seems to be in... What made it rather unique, it tended to not only, well, we usually think of flus and influenza striking the young and the elderly. A lot of middle-aged people got this, and and this is why uh, between the ages of maybe 18 to 30, the greatest number of, of people... Uh, who died were in that age group. So my aunt, Winifred, as a four-year-old, was sort of unusual, but not entirely. 
because there, of course, it affected both the young and the old, but the greatest number, it seems, within um, rather healthy young men, and it affected more men than women. Why did it last for only, essentially, 1918-1919? What happened to it? Does anybody know? You, of all the things I've read, and I've done a lot of reading on it, I've been to lectures on it, I've never heard that explained. And I guess you should have been there and asked that question <laughs> because I've never read an explanation. But a lot, like a lot of um, influenzas, they, send, they tend just naturally to peter out. Like the bubonic plague back in the 14th century. Well, what eventually stopped that? It, but it stopped spreading. You know, they estimate one third of Europeans died of the bubonic plague. But suddenly it stopped. And plagues tended to come and go, different types of plagues, like cholera, smallpox, etc. And they would overwhelm a community for a period of time and then stop. So I can't explain that. I guess a medical historian would be the person to ask. We didn't touch on this either. The the flu started or was pinpointed, the initial case in Kansas in the USA. Why then is it called Spanish influenza? That's very interesting, and, and I did... Uh, some inquiry to find that out, Ken. Um, the reason is because Spain was not actively involved in the war, there wasn't censorship of the papers, the, the media. So as a result, in the other countries which were experiencing it, there was censorship, so it was covered up. The first noted cases and reported cases it would be in the newspapers of the day because that was the form of the media was in Spain and so immediately people picked up the term Spanish influenza the poor Spanish were hung with this and it didn't start there though they did suffer I actually I read the figure they lost 12 million. Now, that was one figure. I haven't seen any other figures to dispute that. But that it would be a huge part of their population at that time. The interesting thing about Spanish flu in the First World War is they're now treated, in, even in the history books, as sort of separate entities. One happened and then followed immediately by the other. But you've already pointed out that they, in fact, were very much interrelated. But the post-war period, in countries like England, anywhere in Europe, even in the U.S. and Canada, there was such a, a revulsion at the casualties from the war that perhaps the influenza epidemic, pandemic, didn't get the attention it deserved. Um, not initially, but as the medical profession and communities, I should say, in large, became aware more and more was done. As one of the, you might say, positive off, uh, offshoots of this was that Canada 
had um, their first um, medical uh, national medical director was set up. So for the first time in Canada, there was actually going to be uh, a medical department overlooking what was going on in the country that didn't exist before. There became also, I think, a greater awareness of vaccination because vaccinations were, the, the first vaccination was actually smallpox for smallpox back in the 1700s, 18th century. So the, the awareness of vaccination, also the awareness of viruses. They first thought the uh, Spanish influenza was a bacteria. And it was only with the improvement with the microscope that they realized it wasn't a bacteria, it was a virus. And so their whole approach changed. But vaccinations work. You have to wonder, there were no vaccinations, uh, no flu shots in 1918, 1919. Now we have flu shots, but they're different every year because the flu changes from year to year. I wonder if the medical experts don't concern themselves with the possibility that a flu can surface one year that is in fact immune to everything and we face a repeat of the, if not epidemic or the pandemic, then at least an epidemic. Yes, I think the medical profession and medical historians uh, are very aware of that and that there's constant research going on because there is that danger, and especially with the growing world population and the conditions that exist in many countries, poverty um, and, and poor housing, homelessness, all of those produce conditions for the spread of influenza. John, thank you very much. You're welcome, and I appreciate appreciate the opportunity to speak about an important Canadian uh, marker. It's an important Canadian uh, time and, and occurrence that I think all Canadians should be aware of. That's retired history professor John Fielding. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 